What does it mean to be a good team? It's not always about what school you went to or what company you worked at in the past, but it's about what is the insight that you have that is unique and also the experience that you have that makes it such that a founder is going to be really good at answering this question and tackling this problem. Sure. So I try to look for teams with an unfair advantage. And Disclaimer number one, guests and hosts drink on this show. And we ask that if you join us, you be of legal age and you drink responsibly. Number two, if you want to know about check size, stage, similar questions, this is the wrong podcast for you. On Drink to the VC, we're all about digging a little bit deeper and getting to know the person behind the investment decisions. Hello, and welcome to episode 14 of Drinks with a VC. Thanks for tuning in via whatever platform you are using. I'm Vic LaQuara, the co-founder and managing director of Seed Fund Green Cow Venture Capital. And I'm joined, as always, by my close friend and co-hostess with the mostest, Bree Hansen, who leads a biz dev at Berkeley. It's a wonderful firm that provides CFO services to technology startups. Long time no see, Bree. Tell me about it. We've had two episodes in two days and two Stanford grads. Yes, absolutely. Two Stanford grads. But actually, our next guest has a degree in material science engineering and a master's in management science and engineering from Stanford. So take that, David Hornick. Uh, she is, uh, you know, earlier in her career, she was a product manager for Microsoft's Outlook and OneDrive products. Oh, wow. She spent time at Excel KKR sourcing growth equity investments at Catalyst Partners, where she executed multi-billion dollar M&A transactions. And uh, early on, she was tapped by YC's own Jessica Livingston uh, in 2013 to establish the sourcing framework for university ecosystems and also worked with YC Admissions. Uh, and then in 2018, she joined Lightspeed as uh, a partner. Uh, she's focused on enterprise and fintech, and her investments include Epic Games, Phoenix Shipper, uh, Shipper Seismic, uh, Easy Cater, BetterUp, Trip Actions, and Blend Labs. Uh, it is my pleasure to introduce a fellow Bay Area native uh, and also the pride of Lowell High School, Natalie <laughs> Liu. Hi, Natalie. Hi, Vic. Hi, Bree. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Thanks for being here. Yeah, absolutely. And I know this has been a hell of a day for you, back to back to back to backs, which we'll get into later. Uh, but first, what are we drinking? What did you What did you decide on drinking today? Kind of kept it a secret from us. It is a secret. Um, this is my drink. Uh, it's in a silver oak wine glass, one of the wineries that I like. Uh, but it is not Cabernet Sauvignon. It is um, actually sour sub juice. So I was in Hawaii last week and uh, drank it at a taco shop and I thought it was amazing. So I decided to get it on Amazon and ship it to my house. Wow. Wait, what kind of juice? Sour sup. Sour sup. It's a fruit native to Southeast Asia. And I believe it also grows in Latin America in very hot, humid areas. Mm -hmm. um, my parents are from Southeast Asia, so it's a fruit that they like a lot. And I didn't know you could find it in juice form. So here I am. So there it is. What would it be comparable to? Is it really sugary or is it very light on the sugar? What is it like? I don't know if I can compare it to anything um, okay. that you could find in a regular grocery store. It's like sour and sweet. Okay. Mm. All right. What island were you at? I was on Kona, the big island. Yes. I love the big island. Uh, it is one of my favorite spots in the world. Bree, you were just in Hawaii. I was. I was on Kauai. So yeah. I was on the other side of the state, yeah. but just as wonderful. Love the entire state. I, I don't even think I can pick a favorite island. Uh, Vic's sister just moved to Oahu. Yes. Yeah. And uh, the guest house is now open officially. So I've been invited. We'll see. We're trying, to, <laughs> we're trying to get out there. Planning anything right now has been a little bit difficult. Was your trip out to Kona, was that your first trip uh, post-pandemic? Or had you traveled before that? I've been traveling since a while. I It was my third time in Hawaii this year. So I okay. 
went to Hawaii for New Year's and Oahu, spring break, Maui, and Big Island for vacation. So uh, I've been traveling when I can. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. So it sounds like Kauai is your next island. Probably is. <laughs> I recommend is. the helicopter ride. Right. Do not miss it. It was amazing. Do the doors off. Yes. Oh. I, I don't think I could. Well, I don't know. Are, are you <laughs> we'll going to do doors that. off helicopter riding? Because I did not spring for the, the doors off. I think I was a little too afraid of, of heights. I did it. Yeah, of course. Well, not Yeah. You're a Natalie, risk taker. Yeah. Would you do it, Natalie? Would you do doors off? I just went on my first helicopter ride two weeks ago with the doors on. So I might need some time to work up to doors off. Awesome. Yeah. When you are not jet setting to Hawaii and, and we know you have a very busy work uh, schedule, uh, how do you like to relax and, and chill out? I do a few different things. Um, the first, probably watching Netflix if I really want to just relax and do something mindless yeah. um, and just dive into my favorite like Asian drama or series that I'm watching. Sure. The other thing is probably work out. So it's, I try to work out like three or four days a week. And it's great because if you are, um, you can't really be on your phone while you're right. working out if you are then you're wasting your time at the gym so it's a great way to just like get my thoughts cleared yeah. um, are you on the treadmill do you get on uh, a, a bike or is something kind of a little bit more cardio that you do yeah um i'll usually start with cardio so i'll like run on the treadmill or use one of the machines um that are kind of that's kind of like elliptical uh, and then I'll do like floor exercises and like work on core and then maybe like try to, I'm just trying to get from zero to one pull up right now. So I'm keeping working go. on that journey. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> any kind of weightlifting that I can fit depending on what's available. And we heard that you like Muay Thai boxing and just generally boxing. Is that something that you've been doing throughout the pandemic? Yeah, um, I have been doing boxing in Muay Thai for the past five years. It's oh, uh, awesome. Grew up um, in my childhood. I did Taekwondo and briefly Kung Fu because it was the easiest thing that my parents could drop me off um, to do a sport because it was sure. very close to my house growing up. So yeah. I grew up doing Taekwondo and competing. So um, the adult form of that is like martial arts, like mixed martial arts. Sure. It's not that common for adults to do Taekwondo. So right. um, I just decided to switch over to Muay Thai and kickboxing. And and then the same gym offered boxing. And so then that's how I got involved in boxing as well. That's uh, amazing. I, I know it's a workout. I have not tried it myself. Um, I, you know, <laughs> you know, it, it, uh, it's definitely something that has appealed to me from the workout and core standpoint, but I, I don't know if I could do it. Brie, have you tried? There are some, there's a boxing gym, I think called rumble in yeah. San Francisco. I've gone with some partners. Um, sometimes people like to go to classes to work out as a business meeting, which I've done. Have you guys yeah. ever done that before? I've gone shotgun shooting with you. That's really the coolest thing that I've done as a, as a Ooh. business meeting, Brie. Okay. I've never done anything. I guess I'm the out of the box one here. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I keep uh, convincing my coworkers to do boxing with me, but they don't want to. But uh, <laughs> I, I told them it's, I'm not going to hit you. Like we're just going to do a workout. It's no yeah. big deal. Uh, well, we heard also that besides boxing, uh, you love to, and we were talking about this a little bit earlier in our pregame that you love uh, to watch Netflix uh, and uh, Marvel, Marvel movies. But we also heard that you like to watch baking shows. Uh, I've been obsessed with, and I'm, I'm wondering if you've watched the show, but it's called bake squad. I don't think I've seen that one yet. Okay. It is the best of both you know, British baking show and um, American actors that you can possibly get because the competition isn't really competition. It's more like, oh, pat on the back. Hey, you won that round this time. But the things that they they 
come up with and the the and produce are just mind blowing. So uh, if you ever get a chance, you really need to watch Bake Squad, and they have not sponsored this episode. So I, I you know, I can't remember if that's the show that I watched because. I'll just go to Food Network and then watch whatever's on. And I don't yeah. know what the show is actually called, but right. there is this one show where um, I think it was the, the one that I was watching was Christmas themed and they had a bunch of different Christmas hats and like, go pick your favorite Christmas hat, go. And then it's like literally whoever like runs for it and then like gets the baking hat, they had to bake a cake with it. Oh, And damn. it's like, wow, in that moment, you're choosing what you want and it's just a regular object. Yeah. And we have to bake an entire cake around it. Yeah. So I thought that was the craziest thing because I can barely bake like a simple, you know, a, a pastry with clear instructions. Yeah. But for them, like they have to incorporate like a delicious cake with creativity, yeah, and crazy colors of like a random cake, a random hat that they were given. That sounds so hard. It sounds hard. And I think all you really need in life though is a little bit of instruction. So if you would, we do, as you as you may know, we do a, a little segment called VC unboxing. And it's more like unbagging at this point because we put everything in bags. But if you could reach kind of behind you and get the bag labeled B. Okay. If you, if you could just grab that. Can I show it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And you can even uh, really give us the play-by-play. -play. It's really cute. Okay. All right. Yeah. You know, Ren, uh, our producer Ren has the best taste in in bags. So you've he, got like he really does. And yeah, it's great stuff. His mother owned a, a shop for women in uh, Palo Alto, so he's picked up a little bit on her aesthetic. There you go. There you go. <laughs> there you go. All right, Natalie. What's in the bag? I feel like I'm opening up Christmas gifts. <laughs> it's awesome. Oh, it's like a lot of wrapping paper. Ooh, some books. Wow. Oh, so much table. Wow, I'm so excited. Yes, yes, absolutely. So now you've wow. got so two fun. baking books and uh, a Surlatab uh, gift certificate that uh, you can put to use um, while you're, you know, at home waiting for your next trip to Hawaii. Wow. Thank That's you so here. much. I'm really excited about this. I'm going to like learn how to make cakes and bread. Um, <laughs> I need to mix it up. Like all I've been doing is making tiramisu. So I need to get wow. to Okay, so that if you, was surprising. If you have, yeah, if you have any left over and it just happens to fall onto my porch. Well, I, have to, <laughs> I have to ask you. So normally people say, okay, we're going to start baking. We're going to do like the breads, the sourdoughs, whatever, a pie. You just went straight for like one of the hardest, most delicate dishes in tiramisu, I feel like. It is very delicate. Um uh, my boyfriend's favorite dessert is tiramisu, so that's how I'm gonna make it. Uh, I ended up instead of making a like a standard birthday cake, yeah, um, made him a tiramisu cake. But you have to eat it quickly, otherwise it'll melt, especially in this hot weather. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, let's switch gears a little bit. Uh, as we often do from time to time, uh, we we stock our guests. And we go on a social media, particularly on Twitter, and we'd like to, to pick a couple of tweets uh, that they've either posted or, you know, whatever they reposted or, or retweeted or commented on. Um, could we, uh, in this segment that we like to call, let's unpack that tweet with Natalie. Uh, can we can we start that? All right. I'm a little nervous. For you Are you today, ready? But all right. Yeah. Let's go. <laughs> Okay. And and by the way, let's first remind our listeners and viewers where they can get links to all of this great content. So what's your handle, Natalie? At Natalou, N-A-T-L-U-U. Perfect. Uh, and then, by the way, do you actively engage with people uh, in discussion uh, on Twitter or are you more sort of passive or do you just publish content? What's your approach and style to, to Twitter? 
when I'm on Twitter, I will sometimes engage in conversation, but I try to engage in conversation with people I know Mm -hmm. uh, on Twitter, not with strangers. So I know some people enjoy doing that, but I I tend to avoid that. You tend to avoid it. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. Well, listen, I think the one of maybe the most influential tweets that you've had, uh, you retweeted a back and forth with Keith Raboy and uh, Frank Rotman from QED. Uh, and you said, this is a must listen to understand the VC funding environment. And for anyone out there, um, you're obviously listening to this podcast. I would recommend that you look up Jared Hecht and, and listen to that episode because it was Natalie, probably one of the most interesting conversations and back and forth that I've heard in a long time between two VCs, uh, and, and very well worth it. Um, and it was really around this concept of um, that no VC out there uh, seems to have pricing discipline anymore. Uh, and I thought that was a really astute observation. Um, can you talk to us a little bit, just like at a high level, what that means to you and how you, how you look at the market right now? Yeah. Um, so the difference between investing in private companies and the stock market is that there is less visibility on the action that's happening. When a company is raising money and a round is going down, you don't know who the bids are, who they're from, how much they are, but you want to win that deal. And there is a limited number of people who can buy stock in that company. It's not like the open market where there's a price and there's a seller, mm-hmm. assuming there's the volume and liquidity of that stock, and you can just be part of it at any price that is listed. The private markets, you don't know that price. So as we've just seen with VC pricing over the years, I've actually been in venture for almost 10 years. And when I first started, Series A's were $3 million. Right. Like That was considered pretty big. Like that was a solid size series A. Today, that's probably less than your average round. So it's almost as if rounds have gotten to the size of where two rounds ahead used to be. Yeah. So the naming convention of what is a series A? How big is that supposed to be? What kind of valuations does a series A company even deserve? Yeah. It's just constantly been moving up and up because You've had more capital into the market, more funds with different investment criteria, oftentimes later stage companies, hedge funds, private equity firms are coming into the venture asset class, and they just want exposure to companies with the lowest possible valuation. And it doesn't necessarily mean that valuation is fair. It could Mm -hmm. be moving the needle. And we're finding with venture People are just willing to put money in the best companies. And sometimes that's at a price that might be higher than has precedence. So that's what's happened over time is that um, at Series A, companies don't always have a lot of metrics to go off of. Sometimes they don't have many metrics at all. And there isn't like a valuation framework or scientific way of calculating what valuation should be. It's what's with a clearing price, the price yeah. that the VC is willing to pay and that the founder is willing to accept. And then yeah. that's it. So yeah. I don't think VCs ever knew how to price. It was, yeah. that was the going rate and it was all the negotiation. And because the balance has tipped towards being in favor of the founders, prices have gone up. Yeah. Uh, they mention, and that's a great point around visibility uh, into metrics and and uh, and whatnot. Um, they do mention that deals go from problem statement to solution to this bullshit forecast, right? Uh, that a lot of pitch decks, you know, have in them. Um, and you know, at the end of the day, everything is based on assumptions that are in these these investor decks. And those assumptions are based on any number of different variables. So they talk about this 0.8 to the fifth 
you know, exponential amount of um, uh, probability that a company will be successful, right? Uh, and I, I think now us as investors, we have to have a pretty high level of a bullshit meter um, to, to kind of call, you know, call out um, narrative violations, right? In, in people's stories. How, how big of a bullshit meter do you think you have? Are you, are you super kind of, uh, you know, VC haircuts uh, and pessimistic until proven otherwise? Or where, where would you place your bullshit meter? I would say more than most people that I knew, like that bullshit meters, I have a very sensitive radar <laughs> for that. Yeah. Um, we sort of live in this culture where resume is really important and being mm-hmm. able to talk about your previous accomplishments get you places. Oftentimes founders are ones who believe they deserve to be CEOs. I've met some founders that say, I don't deserve to be CEO, but I wanted to start this company and achieve this mission. And I just happened to be CEO. Those are my favorite kinds of people because they express a lot of humility and that they're just the ones who decided to take the most risk, which is why they get the CEO position. Not that they're entitled that they deserve anything. I mean, best founders, people who talk like that, in my opinion. Um, But oftentimes you don't meet founders like that. Like that's actually the, the type of founder that I just talked about. I have a person in mind who speaks like that. He's very rare. Um, most of the time, you know, people are selling their vision, and a lot of that vision has a lot of unproven claims, which you could call bullshit. So, yeah, yeah I think um, a lot of even good founders bullshit too, and mm-hmm. it requires the VC having a perspective on the space of the company that they're operating in, good intuition around the person, and being able to talk to people who, who knows this founder and can you really do like those back channel references are really strong people in your network saying great things about this person. Yeah. Like having a good feeling, like, do I want to be this person's um, like partner, business partner? Um, do I trust them with my money? Like all of that, that matters. So like yeah. bullshit aside, like I try to answer those core questions so that I don't, uh, become victim to whatever they're embellishing and whatever they're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so this other point around that is that a lot of investors due to a lack of visibility um, at the early stage, they tend to, as Keith and uh, Frank put this, they, they tend to collapse their venture investment thesis around team and TAM. Um, and I agree with that. I see it entirely on team and entirely, uh, entirely on the, the market size. Um, what other factors do you try and pull in regardless of the, the earlier the stage of the company? That's number one. And, and number two is really you know, what sort of asymmetric knowledge do you sort of bring to the table um, to help kind of inform your uh, investment thinking um, and, and evaluating of a, of a company and a startup that you see? TAM can be a really tricky concept because there are some companies today that are really big where the initial market that they started out in was very small. And that market grew over time as more and more users realized this was helpful. I think that Figma started out with a small market size. Um, it was a product that was used by designers. And you could count the number of designers at various companies. There aren't that many designers at a lot of companies. Sure. But now Figma is widely used across all product teams and even engineering teams, anyone who's dealing with front-end design and you have all these companies developing developing products. The developer market is huge. And the market is a lot bigger for Figma than people originally thought. So mm. TAM can be tricky um, because it's not always easy to predict, but looking at a product and saying, what could this be? And is that a big market? Not about what's their TAM today. So I think yeah. that's an important thing that great investors had to figure out, right? Like, 
when people first heard of Uber, they're like a black car service. How many people can even afford a black car service? But who would have thought that Uber pretty much replaced the entire taxi cab industry and that the concentration of people living in cities would increase so high that having a car didn't make sense anymore, that having something like Uber, in fact, like opens up and expands the number of people who are willing to take a a car Mm -hmm. that they would just call. So um, answering what could this be and is that market large, I think is more important than asking Tam, especially in the early days. Um, the other thing around team, uh, one of my friends, Will, uh, opened door from OEL Ventures. He said, I look for people who have an unfair advantage. And I thought that was a really good way of putting things because Mm -hmm. what does it mean to be a good team? It's not always about what school you went to or what company you worked at in the past, but it's about what is the insight that you have that is unique And also the experience that you have that makes it such that a founder is going to be really good at answering this question and tackling this problem. So I try to look for teams with an unfair advantage. And Mm -hmm. that might mean a lot of different things depending on the market they're going after. Yeah. Well, speaking of teams and sort of unfair advantages, and we talked a little bit about like those asymmetric uh, knowledge and insight that you can bring as an investor, right? Keith uh, Raboy said something about, you know, as a a former attorney uh, and IP litigator, he really understands regulatory risk and therefore um, he really looks at health tech companies and fintech companies with a a different lens and maybe uh, more potential than other investors do. you have a very interesting background in that in the 2000, early 2000s, you worked uh, with your family and at the, the family's uh, business. And you talk a lot and you've blogged a, a bunch about it, and, uh, but about how that um, impacted the way that you view entrepreneurs, the empathy that you bring, but also um, the hustle that maybe you just have a, a, a better sense of the investors that are hustling more, et cetera. But I really like this one story that you had around sort of payments and that being a pain point that you experienced intimately. And therefore this is something that you were looking for entrepreneurs to solve. Can you talk a little bit more about that for us? Yeah, for sure. So big part of my life was working at the family tea business, which my dad started in 2001 after quitting his job um, as a corporate controller. So he's kind of in the FBNA world in tech and he was tired of it. And also a lot of companies were going bust in 2001. So he decided to um, pursue his passion, which was creating his own line of tea. And during that time, we created this brand of tea that we were selling to um, retail storefronts. They could be coffee shops, Um, we were at some point in Andronico's and Marshall Fields. So we were selling this brand of tea and there were many times where I was just out there selling. So as a, as a kid, uh, and as a teenager, I was on the floor of Moscone center or the concourse exhibition center in San Francisco, where we had food exhibition shows like food trade shows. And my parents would be talking to the distributors and I would be selling to the individual people who walked up to me asking about our tea products on the floor. So that just level of salesmanship, which I've been developing since I was less than 10 years old, has just stuck with me forever. And um, it was hard work because we were always selling. But the moment you make that sale is not the moment you get paid. Yeah. What happens is when you work with uh, a lot of these wholesale customers, you ship them product, they pay maybe 30 days or 60 days after they receive the product. So you're doing a lot of uh, upfront capital and taking on risk with inventory where you try to forecast demand and have inventory, but then you're not going to get paid for months after buying that inventory at all. So for kind of many small business, I think working capital is a huge constraint. And with a lot of these new companies, not just FinTech, but anything that involves payments online, they're doing creative things to help businesses get paid faster. So that's why I think that 
none of those solutions existed when I was working for my family's tea business in the 2000s. But now that it's 2021, there's a lot of software companies that are trying to address this problem. So it can range from embedded lending providers to marketplaces like FAIR, which is uh, our portfolio, which is a B2B marketplace where they basically help the merchants get paid upfront and provide that as a service. So there are a lot of options out there that are helping businesses run. Awesome. Uh, So on that note, we know that you're a tea connoisseur um, and probably know more about tea than 99% of the people out there. But our friend uh, Tim Pham over at Tea Time pulled together uh, a wonderful little thing for you. I wonder if you could just search behind you for the bag labeled. I tea. noticed there was a bag. <laughs> and I was yes. like, yeah. We don't have a lot of creativity in terms of, you know, I think we're going to push things up, Brie. Also, so cute. I'm going to save these bags. One, two, three, A, B, and C, but no, uh, nothing that'll give it away. What do you think, Brie? That's fragile. Ah, let's see. Okay. All right. Here's the tea time bag. I'm so excited. Wow. Have you heard of tea time, first of all? I have not. Okay. I, I mean, yes, this is fantastic. And uh, for everyone out there, go to tea time. Yeah, it's in San Mateo, I believe. Um, it's really, really cool. You can even have your own little um, teacup that you leave there to come and have tea there. Ooh. It's very cool. Little tea locker. Tea parties. Oh, I'm such. sorry. Palo Alto. Not. Palo Alto. Yeah. Yes. yeah. So it's in Palo Alto and California Avenue. Um so I'll definitely check it out. There are a couple tea teapots in here that says fragile. So I don't want to. Fantastic. Don't, don't, you don't have to open it here right now, right. but but we hope that you can enjoy those things. And and um, uh, again, we are always aiming to kind of find that that one something to remind you of 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 a moment in in your career or your your life experience. So. Uh, hopefully we pulled that off over there. Um, so I, I want to go back to this pandemic. Uh, you've been, you've still maintained a lot of activity. You're working a lot. Uh, you've also traveled to to Hawaii a bunch. Um, you just recently in July 27th, uh, you announced on Twitter uh, the investment in Echo uh, or is it Eco? Uh, I'm not sure which way is the right way to pronounce it. Um, but it's all about providing consumers a bridge to a smart money future today. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about what the experience was like? I don't know if you had met uh, Echo or Eco before the pandemic, or if this was a, a relationship that, that happened entirely during the pandemic. So, yes, it's called Eco. Eco, yeah. Eco is a digital finance app that allows you to spend online and earn rewards. And those rewards have a vision that involve crypto. So it's not announced yet what those plans are gonna be, but through a kind of partnership with lots of merchants, uh, technology on their end to uh, facilitate payments, prevent fraud and um, basically plug in with the with crypto related processes in the back end. Yeah. Um, it's more of a way to deposit the earnings that you're getting into this virtual account and mm-hmm. spend with that same account and get really enticing rewards. So um, this relationship started and and well never ended, but started in the pandemic. So okay. I reached out to Andy Bromberg, who's the CEO of Eco. Um, I want to say late 2020. And at the time, um, because of my history being a fintech investor and kind of crossing over into crypto, Eco just seemed like the perfect intersection of those two themes. So I reached out to him. And at first, he wouldn't take my call because he was so busy. So um, I reached out to him, got introductions to him, and eventually he was like, okay, I will talk to you. You've been writing some good 
good posts about fintech and crypto, like let's talk. Um, And to close that deal, I actually saw him in Miami. So I went to Bitcoin Miami in June and that was the first time I'd gone to a conference uh, in the pandemic. And it was just insane over there. Like Miami with 50,000 people there just for, to talk about crypto it's a pretty insane place to be. Sure, sure. Um, it's like a constant party. There's like multiple events every single day for like a week straight. Yeah, um, yeah. But during that time, I said, Andy, like, let's get coffee, like away from everybody else. Mm-hmm. And I picked this like unknown ice cream shop where it was just me and him. And like maybe a couple of other people in the store, we were away from most of the activity and was there to close that deal we were just talking about just like the vision of money and crypto and how people like you and i can just use it every day and sure. yeah it was it's an exciting one yeah i can see definitely on your twitter there is a common theme and crypto figures heavily into it um as does really blockchain i i feel like it's it's kind of hand in hand in a way um but you did have one blog post in particular I think it's on Medium as well, um, but you reference okay, missing out a little bit on the 2012 kind of boom in in Bitcoin, et cetera, um, but being very much a part of it now. Um, and you you talked a little bit about um, kind of where what's next, right? In in crypto and um, and blockchain and and, and the intersection at, at fintech. Um, and you also retweeted uh, something uh, with regards to where the next business mafia was going to come from. And I kind of put the two and two together. Uh, and so here's my question. Do you believe that the next business mafia is going to come from a crypto uh, company? Well, um you could already argue that those are forming now. So there have been several generational fintech companies that have emerged in the last few years, Stripe being one of those. Um, They're not focused on crypto, but mostly on financial infrastructure. And a lot of those people have gone on to start other companies. Mm -hmm. We'll see how large those companies become. So, you know, it it takes time to say this was a mafia. Yeah. Um, But those you know, early signs, you could say are part of the Stripe community. You could say the same with Plaid. Yeah. You could say the same with Airbnb. You could yeah. say the same with Robinhood. A lot of these generational fintech or payment related companies are forming these, you know, yeah. magnet of just talent. So yeah. you could say that those could be mafia someday, but I think it needs like another few years to play out and see how those companies do. You could definitely say that Coinbase is the next company in that category uh, in a lot of ways. And you can see this by the recent hires that they've made at Coinbase, but mm-hmm. they hired the CMO of Facebook. They hired a lot of key, very senior engineering leaders from Google. But a lot of the DNA that Coinbase has now could be like the next Facebook, right? They are this generational retail company that everybody knows. When they think about crypto, it's almost synonymous with Coinbase. There's a lot of great talent out of there. People who made a lot of money, who are willing to take their risk and take their next journey and start a new company are coming out of Coinbase. Like yeah. I have several friends from Coinbase that have left and are have already started their own companies or thinking about starting companies. So I think that could be another mafia. And yeah. as more and more of these um, crypto companies become big, people will leave and start their own thing. And you could even argue that like Ethereum and the Ethereum Foundation could potentially be a crypto mafia in its own. Um, one of the people who was really important in Ethereum was Gavin Wood, who started Polkadot, which is one of the top five um, layer one chains. So pretty much it's starting to happen before our eyes in so many companies already. But to really call it a mafia, um, Give it a few more years yeah. and then maybe we can say who was really a mafia or not. Yeah. So we'll, the hot take from Natalie Liu is that watch out for Coinbase here as the next big business mafia, potentially. For sure. Yeah. For sure. 
I don't know if it's a hot take, but <laughs> I we would call, say we call it that. <laughs> the reason like, why it, I thought it was a great hot take. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the reason why Coinbase is so interesting of a culture, and I think it's far more interesting than some of the other companies I listed, is that they had to deal with so many new problems. Right? Crypto was such a it's, it's such a new thing where you had people who joined this company who took a huge risk knowing that crypto might just go away, decided to join this company. Like founders have a DNA that has like a little bit of just not crazy, but you know, a little yeah. bit of, they took a risk. They took a leap of faith sure. and yeah. uh, they took a leap of faith to go to crypto. And you could say like, you need to be able to take a leap of faith. If you're going to start a new company and, there's just so many aspects of like regulation, fintech, crypto, all this stuff exists at Coinbase. So yeah, yeah I think there's going to be a lot of great companies that come out of there. So uh, let's shift gears um, to something a little bit more lighthearted. You you did mention that you had been bidding on NFTs on OpenSea uh, and that it was an expensive kind of proposition. Uh, our next segment uh, was made just for you. Uh, we've put together uh, a little bit we like to call NFT or NFW. Uh, of course, NFT standing for non-fungible token and uh, NFW standing for no fucking way. Uh, so in this segment, I'm going to present to you two options. Uh, one will be an NFT with the price that it sold at, and the other will be a fake, not an NFT. Now we know right. NFTs could be anything. You can tokenize anything, et cetera, et cetera. But these are real numbers, at least for the for the, the truth. For one. Here we go. Round one of NFT or NFW. On the left-hand side, we have Warren Buffett's first tweet. It sold for $999,000. And on the right-hand side, we have Jack Dorsey's first tweet. Just setting up my Twitter. It sold for $2.9 million. Which one is the true NFT? Jack's. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> you are correct. You are correct. Uh, here we go. Thankfully, I do use Twitter, so I saw that one. <laughs> <laughs> so you saw that one. Okay, fair enough. Oh, don't want to get ahead of ourselves. Here we go. The number two on the left-hand side is a lovely mosaic that sold for a whopping $69.3 million on the left. And on the right-hand side, we have, for all of those listeners out there not joining us via video, we have a GIF from Mike Tyson's Punch-Out, which sold for $1.9 million. Natalie Liu, which one is the real NFT? I think it's the one on the left. Ding, ding, ding. She is now two for two. Uh, wow. That, who, who created this? I Can you remind uh, me? Yeah, it was Beeple. B-E-E-P-I-L-E. Very okay. famous. And actually, Beeple. if you look All at right. like the the top 10 uh, selling NFTs, I think Beeple occupies three of the top 10. Yeah. If you had told me it was by Beeple, then that would have given it away. I didn't want to do that. I didn't yeah. want to do that. I didn't want to do that. <laughs> I know you're a serious NFT uh, aficionado. I like the one on the right, though, but it's not Did worth 1.9 mil. Yeah, but that was me screenshotting. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, here we go. Uh, so on the left, we have a gray square. Um, we're going to call this the pixel. And on the right-hand side, we are going to call this cow jumping through blueberry bagel with rainbow coming out of it. <laughs> uh, on the left-hand side, uh, the, the artwork entitled pixel sold for $1.35 million. On the right-hand side, we have a... Uh, beautiful cow that sold for $187,000. Which one is the NFT? Man, I haven't seen either of these things. So I'm just going to take a wild guess uh -huh. and just say that 
the pixels the one that got sold for all you, my yeah. <laughs> ding ding, ding. <laughs> oh my gosh you're you're kidding three me. for three. Uh, Who bought this? <laughs> yeah, it's it's actually uh, its artist is very well known by name, but the actual uh, is, is unknown. Uh, he goes by a pseudonym that I, I can't remember off the top of my head currently. And the artist on the right was me. I did that in ten minutes uh, on Mac Paint or or Office Paint, actually. Just the so. way that the one on the right was created, I was like, I could just see this being hand drawn <laughs> with the, on the on the mouse on the computer. Yeah, that paint. was. So yeah. I was just thinking, like, either a kid just drew this in paint, <laughs> or somebody. <laughs> But the Absolutely. way you said the pixel, I was like, that sounds like art. It sounds like art, right? <laughs> yeah. It sounds like art. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, here we go. Second to last. We've got... Firestarter? Yeah. And on the right, we've got a kid in fire, a kid in front of a f- uh, house on fire. And on the right, we have Michaela Maroney with her famous... Look, I, I can't remember what it's called. Someone, someone has to tell me. I, I, I believe it's not interested. Which one is NFT, and the, which one? The is little it? girl on the left looks really familiar. I've seen this one before, so I think this is the NFT. Bree, can you verify that that is the NFT? I believe that she's correct. On the left-hand side, we have. What looks to be an alien with a smoking pipe and a Ford dark cap. He's also wearing sunglasses. And on the right-hand side, we seem to have a brunette woman with red lipstick, uh, a nose and two eyes, and and uh, orange earring of sort. Uh, on the left, it sold for $7.57 million. And on the right... Uh, it sold for $334,000, which I believe is the average amount that uh, the crypto guys are selling their, the crypto labs folks are selling their um, NFTs for, so, uh, or auctioning them for. Uh, Natalie, do you know which one that real true NFT is? I feel like this should be a poll for the general public who listen to this podcast. <laughs> be safe for them. I don't want to give the answer away. Oh, no, you have to. You have to. Well, I have to say the one on the right looks more worth, looks like it's worth a lot more money because it yeah. holds my face. Yes. Um, yes. Okay. But I do know for a fact that the real crypto punk is actually on the left. So. Yes, yes. <laughs> Yes. So uh, CryptoPunk, this is one of, I believe, eight or nine aliens out of 10,000 NFTs that they've created and auctioned. Um, this one did sell for 7.7, 7. $7.57 If I may ask, did you create the, uh, the one on the right or did you purchase it? No. I um, had it commissioned for me. Very cool. That is awesome. That is awesome. And uh, so in a way, it is your own NFT as well. It um, is. I did make it on OpenSea. Oh, it is on OpenSea. Yeah. That's so, so it is cool. an NFT and it's yeah. mine. That's so great. And it's yeah. going by the Ethereum 147 code or whatever. Yeah. I'm yeah. minted on the Ethereum blockchain. Yeah. That is fantastic. Well, there you go. Uh, she is uh, not only a fintech investor extraordinaire uh, um and super into crypto but uh you know she she makes her own uh nft via open c so that's pretty cool um and for that because you are and you went five for five uh we would like to to gift you our uh our last unbagging uh so if you would just turn around and and All get right, the right. bag labeled v I'm excited for her to say right. this. Bad beef. Me too. I like this. Here we go. It's a cute bag. Again, Ren killed it with the bag. Oh, it's a better sweater. This pow. <laughs> Get this pow on it. There you so go. 
So each, each of our guests gets their own bespoke vest because of course, what, what's a VC without a vest? And we didn't want you to show up to your next conference wearing the same Patagonia vest that everyone else has. So we know that you like boxing and Muay Thai, and we know that you're really into uh, Marvel movies and comics, and you're also kick ass. So we got you pow on yours. Thank you so much. That's excellent. And we do, there are rumors and those rumors are true. Uh, We will be having uh, a party. um, It's true. Everything is... April fourteenth, hopefully, April? we're April we're ho- we're going to be hosting a Brooklyn conference with a drinks of the VC party, and uh, you'll get to wear your vest and uh, hobnob with some of the other guests and a couple other VCs. It'll be very fun, and uh, yeah, we just had a call about it today, didn't we, Josh? So very excited, and look forward to meeting you in person one of these days. Yes, absolutely. Well, as is uh, just kind of ceremony here at the pod, uh, we like to give our guests the last opportunity, last 20 seconds to cheers us out. And it's your 20 seconds to bring up whatever you would like. You can talk about NFTs. You can talk about your favorite charity. You can uh, talk about your time at Lowell. This is your time. Uh, Natalie Lou, take it away. And thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. So the last 20 seconds, I'm going to talk about my favorite nonprofit organization in San Francisco. It's one that's a little bit lesser known, but it's called Self-Help for the Elderly. And it is a senior center um, that has locations in cities all across the Bay Area. And they organize activities and send out ready-made meals to older Chinese Americans. So uh, people living all the way from, I think, San Francisco to San Jose and perhaps in the East Bay as well. Um, Many older Chinese or Asian citizens are dealing with a lot of violence right now. And it's not really safe for them to go outside, get food, groceries, and... um, it's, it's very hard for them to be independent right now. So during the pandemic, especially when it just hit, um, these centers were hit hard because this was a place, a safe place where um, seniors could congregate. And um, uh, my family decided to donate money to the senior center. My grandparents actually go to the one in the Sunset District in San Francisco. And I continue to support them. And uh, one of my partners at Lightspeed, Jeremy Liu, kindly offered. He actually matched my donation for my family and sent them a donation as well. So, um, oh, wow. yeah, I try to support them as much as I can. Well, excellent. Uh, we will have the link in uh, the pod to that charity. We really appreciate uh, you bringing awareness to that. Uh, and on that note, thank you again for joining us. We really had a blast hosting you and look forward for you coming back and talking about some deals that you've done since and and all that good stuff. Thank you so much, Natalie. Thank you, Natalie. Thanks Cheers. so much. Cheers. Cheers. Enjoyed this episode of Drinks with a VC? Please be sure to hit those like, share, and subscribe buttons on Apple, Spotify, Google, YouTube, or wherever you enjoy your favorite podcasts.